Hi, I'm Howard Tierski. Welcome to the Winning Digital Customers Podcast, where we focus on the stories of large-scale digital transformations told by the people who lead them. All right, welcome back once again to the Winning Digital Customers Podcast. An exciting day for me because in just three, four days, my hardcover version of my book, Winning Digital Customers, will be available uh, bookstores and on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, everywhere else. So I want to encourage you to check that out. And I want to welcome my guest. I'm equally excited about my guest today, Walt Carter. Walt is a, a real innovator. He is currently the chief information officer and chief digital officer of Homestar Financial, a leading mortgage company and more. And he has an amazing track record of driving change across a number of companies. He was actually named this year by Constellation Research in the Business Transformation 150 list for 2020. He has previously been named the CIO of the year for Georgia and has a long list of additional credits and acknowledgments and recognitions, really because he's somebody who's come into company after company after company and help drive change. And so I'm really excited to talk to him today about where he's done that, what he's learned, and what he can share with all of you. So Walt, welcome, and let me give you the opportunity to expand in any way you'd like on the introduction and tell the folks a little bit about your background. Well, thank you so much, Howard. It's so, such a privilege to be with you. Congratulations on the success of the book. I'm one of your early readers, by the way. I found the content to be tremendously valuable. And it resonates with a lot of the things that I've learned over the years as a change leader or change driver for organizations. You know, one of the things that I think is kind of central to my background is, uh, you know, I grew up in the military. My dad was a career enlisted man, United States Air Force. After graduating from college with my undergraduate degree in physics, uh, I also uh, signed up and became a maintenance officer working on nuclear missiles up in uh, North Dakota for the U.S. Air Force. And I think a lot of that military heritage really is one of the key components, if you will, of how I go about change. I was on a leadership call with a number of the CIOs here in Atlanta just recently. One of the things that, that we talked about there was, you know, the challenge in changing an organization is never a technology challenge. Some people will argue with me vehemently about that. And frankly, I kind of turn my, my head sometimes and go, well, you know, that's great that you have that opinion. But in my experience, it's always been getting the people aligned is a far more powerful set of problems to, to resolve than getting the technology to work. If you give me enough time and enough money, I can solve your technology problems. I've got no doubts about it. And if I can't personally do it, which is frequently the case, by the way, I know how to hire guys that can come in and help us get that mountain moved, so to speak. But you know, I gave a presentation to a, a group of project managers here in Atlanta a few years ago, and the topic for me that day was uh, was PMO salvage, right? Why project management offices fail over and over again, and why what you have to do to turn them around and get real value out. I asked that crowd of 355 project management institute members, uh, many many of them PMP certified project managers. How many of you guys have ever had a project fail because of insurmountable technology problems? And I had two hands go up in the room. I said, "Okay, now the true the true question. How many of you have had projects fail because of insurmountable people problems?" And I think it was about 700 hands that went up. Uh, right? You know, I raised my hand. <laughs> And so most of the time, you know, getting change accomplished is really, I think, fundamentally about getting clarity on what it is you're doing 
the typical consultant thing, right? And I know, uh, no, no offense, because I know that's what you're doing for a living these days, but I've done it too for many, many years. And, and a lot of times you go in and you ask those basic questions, you know, okay, well, where are you at? Where would you like to be? And let's plot a course and see, see how we can get there for you, right? That's what we do, not only as consultants, but also as executives in companies, right? So where are we at? Where do we want to be? How are we going to get there from here? You know, and then then you start applying some other rules, you know, and a lot of those are in your book, by the way. And I again, I encourage everybody to go out and get a copy of Howard's book because there's some really nuggets of wisdom in there that I think are pretty valuable about this particular aspect of change. So, you know, I could tell you too, Howard, you know, if you're interested, you know, one, one of my great learning opportunities was frankly a big failure while I was in the Air Force. Yeah, let's hear it. I'd love to hear it. Okay, so so I uh, I'm a I'm a young lieutenant. I uh, I've taken over a team of engineers that are uh, 88 in number. They're very young. Their jobs are to go out into the missile field where we have you know a large number of Minuteman threes on alert, chasing green time. We want those those missiles to be on alert as much as possible, covering targets. And um, the guys that I'm I'm running for that new OIC job, officer in charge, are what they call the spark chasers, right? They're the ones that when there are electrical problems anywhere in that infrastructure that supports keeping that bird on alert and ready to fire, my guys go out to the field uh, in arguably one of the, the harshest climates in North America. It's in, in the area of Minot, North Dakota. And they look for and troubleshoot electrical problems on a live nuclear missile. Nothing like a little pressure, uh, right? So I'm brand new OIC to the shop, and uh, I, I get in there, and the big boss upstairs says, you know, Walt, when, when your guys go out to the field, we send out these evaluation teams to watch them. About every fourth visit out into the job world, we've got a team out there that's evaluating whether they know what they're doing or not. And unfortunately, your teams are failing about one time out of four. So you've got about a 25% failure rate here. And our standard is, you know, 99 point something, right? You know, and I'm like, well, uh, what do you think the problems are? What do you think is causing that, sir? And he said, well, I think it's mostly because you've got the youngest engineers in the fleet. Everybody else has got old guys. We're not the glamour base. You know, all of the all of the older guys with experience are going to the more southern climates, frankly. They're not up here. And so, you know, as soon as your guys get enough seniority to rotate out, they're all going to those other places. But we're not getting backfilled with senior people. We're getting backfilled with the guys coming right out of basic and their follow-on training. I think that's really the problem. You've got young guys. And I'm like, okay, so let me go see if I can figure it out. I can tell you a a long, long story here, and I'm going to try to keep it a little shorter just for the sake of getting to the nugget, right? What I learned out of this. First step was I called everybody in on a weekend, which was the only time we could get everybody together. And what I thought I said coming out of my mouth was, don't worry, we're going to figure this out. We're engineers. We're smart guys and gals, and we're going to figure this out. And what they heard me say was the equivalent of all vacations are canceled until morale improves and we get our scores up. Almost immediately, my senior guys came to me and said, oh, sir, you blew that. That was one of the most awful performances by a new OIC we've ever seen. And I don't know how you're going to be able to recover. And oh, by the way, the evaluation squadron from higher headquarters is coming in in just four months. You only have four months to turn this thing around. And, you know, and I'm a relatively intelligent young man at that point. And I said, Okay, well, what do you think I should do? And they told me. And they said, well, you know, first of all, you, you, you can't call everybody in like that anymore. You're going to have to deal with them one at a time. 
they're not happy. They already know that nobody here is happy and they already feel like the whole wing is going to go down if they don't perform and they don't know how they're going to get there from here. We got to give them some hope. I'm like, okay, so what do you think that hope would look like? And they said, we don't know, sir. That's what you're here for. And I'm like, crap, uh, <laughs> crap. So little backstory, I had just come from a pretty successful engagement running as a, a branch manager, our training department. So most of these guys had been through my training group and I keyed in on that word, you know, they got to have some hope that they can actually get this done, that we can actually turn this around. And so I went back to the colonel that hired me and I said, sir, here's the two things I need. I need a particular instructor that uh, had done such a great job for me in the training department. I had put him in a cushy job as a payoff, frankly, for the outstanding performance. And I said, and he's not going to want to leave the job that I just gave him to come back into you know, the line of fire, so to speak, but we're going to have to have him. He's the only guy I know that can really get into the heads and the hearts of these guys in you know, a unique way as an instructor to give them the confidence that they need, that they've got the help. I said, the other guy that I need is really going to hurt. He's the guy that's in engineering that knows our weapon system better than anybody on the planet. And I really need him to come in. I need these two technical sergeants to come in to my organization and help these kids grow up fast in terms of learning. Here's what happens when we're in the field and we don't know what to do. Sergeant, you've got that one. And here's what we're going to do to prep them before they go to the field to make sure that they have the least opportunity to fail, that they're well instructed. We did a few other things that were that were kind of interesting, but probably the most important thing was was back to the first part. You know, I had to go literally do one-on-ones with 88 guys and gals and talk through, you know, what are you doing here? Why are you here? What do you want to get out of this? Really start to understand what drove those individuals, team them effectively, work with, you know, my two sergeants, uh, Phil and Wakely, and get those guys all the way on board. I had another little, uh, you know, strange thing that happened along the way. I had a, a senior master sergeant that was assigned as my uh, my branch NCO IC. And unfortunately, that that gentleman didn't really understand the plan, didn't want to understand the plan, and uh, and really didn't like the notion that we were going to give the kids, as he called them, so much latitude. He felt like it was too much room to fail. And so he wanted to clamp down in more of what you might think of as a traditional military mindset. I didn't have that mindset, Howard. I did not have that mindset at all. I was trying to figure out how am I going to survive this next four months? And most importantly, how am I going to get these guys and gals over the hump of this evaluation? Because the evaluation squadron that we use came from our specialty base in Vandenberg, California, where we, we do live fires and live tests of those missiles from time to time. It's called a, a field operational test of the missile. Those guys were truly the experts in our weapon system. And they were coming in to evaluate the youngest group in the fleet. And again, we've got live nukes on the ground in silos that are covering targets according to our plan. So you can't afford, really, the cliche is failure is not an option. Well, failure is not really an option. It's not on the the card. It's not anywhere in the menu. you got to figure out how to win here. Long story short, we, we actually did come through that evaluation with the best scores that the evaluators had seen in two years of going around from you know each base and, and evaluating. And they said that in the only failure that they observed, that my troops had failed in error leaning toward excellence. They had condemned a particular piece of equipment that the evaluators thought was still serviceable. But my guy said, no, there's enough fraying in this gasket that we're going to condemn it and we're going to replace it with a brand new gasket so that somebody coming behind us doesn't have to make the same call. 
And so we got one failure out of almost 104 evaluations that were conducted over that you know, week-long period. Really an incredible performance. I won't tell you about all the bets I collected on where people had literally said, well, there's no way in the world you were going to get these guys through this. And I will also tell you that one of the most frustrating things that, that happened after that win, uh, you know, I got a really great job coming out of there. Got to go fly on Looking Glass for three years and help the president of the United States understand, you know, what his options were under nuclear attack and do some really cool stuff. And they hired a guy to come in behind me who had been selected for major below the zone, which is, you know, hard to do in the Air Force. And he immediately went to the textbook and reorganized my whole group according to the textbook, not in accordance with the way that I had structured it so that form followed function. And it almost immediately started to go downhill again. And, uh, you know, and, and like I said, that's one of the things that when you do accomplish a big change and you get the win, you kind of want to hold the ground. And yet you don't have control over that. You kind of keep moving to the next organization. You move to the next hill to climb, so to speak. You know, it's hard sometimes watching the people come from behind, not really understanding it. That was a, a little more frustration. Big win after a big failure. Yeah, that's a great story. Well, it makes me think of a couple of things. One is, an important lesson taken from the guy behind you is if you have your choice of assignments, it's better to take the team that's performing poorly. Because if you take the team that's already performing at the top, you almost only got one direction to go, right? I mean, you can try to take them to another level, but there's something to be said for being the turnaround guy rather than trying to take a peak performing team and try to figure out if you can do even more. You're exactly right about that. I recall a conversation, you know, the colonel that tapped me for that particular job literally told me that. He said it, you know, this way. He was a, a really cool full colonel from uh, from North Texas. And he said, well, he said, normally I need to put, you know, a senior captain or a major in this job. And unfortunately, if I put any one of the guys that we have here now that are in that particular rank and they fail, it'll be the end of their military career. If I put you in there as a lieutenant, and you fail, you'll be able to survive. And I'll make sure that you do. But if I put them in there and they don't make it, it's the end of their career. He uh-huh. said, so you have survivability. And he said, but I wouldn't put you in this job if I didn't think you could do it. And my commitment to you is that I'm going to give you whatever resources you come back to me and tell me you need. That's how I got Phil and Wakely from training and engineering. And they didn't, neither one of them really wanted, and I couldn't have forced them to come back without the colonel's help, right? And that was him honoring his commitment. And then that good job that I got coming out of there to go fly on the the looking glass plane for three years, that was because I did win. I didn't fail. I didn't let him down and uh, didn't cost him a captain or a major. And so he took care of me and he did, he did everything that he said he was going to do. But your point is, it's much better to go in where you have slim odds, good turnaround opportunity, let's call it, right? A really right. good turnaround opportunity. A blessing uh, of low expectations. <laughs> yeah. And 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 you've got, you know, that comfort level of saying, well, even if I screw it up, I can't screw it up that bad. Right. right. Now, you know? now, just the, the looking, I'm not familiar with looking glass, what that means. So can you just, it sounds very interesting. Did you say advising the president of the United States? That sounds really cool. What can you tell us uh, briefly about that? That sounds just like a cool tidbit from your background. It'd be good to hear about it. So, uh, so we had from 1960 roughly to 1991, an organization that basically we would lift airplanes into the sky at strategic points all the way around the planet. One of those planes flew out of uh, SAC headquarters, Strategic Air Command headquarters in Omaha, Nebraska, with a, uh, a battle staff and a comm gear. And, uh, you know, and, and we could talk to anybody on the ground. 
in the sky or under the water. And if the president decided that he wanted to launch the nuclear fleet, we were the ones that would capture that, write the executive order, and execute that command for him. And my job was, uh, you know, coming out of the maintenance world, was essentially to say to the general on board that was in our plane, we always had a, a line general officer from SAC headquarters, one of the many, probably 26 generals that were on active duty at the time. And that guy or gal would talk to the president. And basically the scenario would go in war game after war game, you know, Mr. President, we have inbound nuclear. So here's the threat. Here's what they're targeting. Uh, you have approximately two minutes to make a decision. And here's your options on the red card. Uh, <laughs> wow, intense. The general would go through that. And at the end, the president would say, I've made my decision, General. I chose an option number three. And um, option set normally would go through, you, know, you can meet them with you know, a similar kind of counter equivalent, if you will. You can meet them with something less than, but more strategic. You can meet with something more and more powerful. Or you can meet them with, let's just unload everything we got. Uh, uh, pretty simple, right? When you get right down to it, but you don't have very much time, right? And this is, this is another thing that, you know, really drives me uh, as a change leader is that, you know, when you're in a decision-making environment where you don't have a big window to make a decision, you've got to gather the best information you can as fast as you can, conduct your analysis almost on the fly and be able to make a decision that is mostly going to turn out to be right. And that's the that's the real challenge for you know the the dynamic environment that we're living in and that you're helping your clients with you know is it's more intense than I think any time in my lifetime, especially from a technology perspective. Certainly, uh, we saw that with COVID, of course. Yeah, and so military style situation, right? A sudden attack, right? And yeah. every company, in some ways, was attacked, and their normal method of doing business was was disabled, and they had to figure out how to respond. Yeah. And, and, you know, at Homestar, we were really fortunate in many ways. We had uh, adopted some technologies that allowed us to go fully remote almost from day one. And, you know, we're big Citrix shops. So we, we were able to mm. have everybody, you know, very secure, very safe way, start to work from home, distribute that whole workforce across 25 states. And, and we've had a record year. I mean, the mortgage industry, as I've shared with you on some of our, our leader lodge calls, We've had probably an unprecedented year because of a combination of factors. One of those factors is the number of people that are turning 30 is at a peak right now and continuing to peak for the next several years. You've got the record low interest rates that are driven by some of the Fed policies. And then you've also got people that are completely capable now of shopping online for the home of their dreams. They don't need to go to the open houses anymore. And then you've got one other factor that I think is really interesting. In a lot of our markets, we have you know, a real shortage of inventory to sell. And so when properties come on the market that are valuable, people are literally making offers within the first day of that property going on the market. And the more desirable that particular property is, the more likely you are to get above market offers coming in. So it truly is a seller's market right now. Mm -hmm. But on the, on the converse of that, because of those low interest rates, I'm old enough to remember uh, Jimmy Carter's administration when uh, interest rates were in the 17, 18, 19% on a 30-year fixed. We're at two and a quarter, two and a half on a 30-year fixed. Amazing. Yeah. So, so people are buying everybody. Now's the time. <laughs> we've been holding true. Uh, you know, we're kind of, we're interesting in that we're a rural company. We serve mostly rural markets. We're not in the big cities. Uh, so I don't have to go head to head with any of the big monster guys that are out there, the big banks that are doing mortgages. 
that has helped us tremendously. Second, though, is that we've also seen, you know, this surge in people that are just basically going, well, look, you know, I don't think I'm ever going to see interest rates this low again. So whatever I got to do to go get a house now, I can buy the most house that I'm ever going to be able to buy right now, then now's the time to buy. And so we're seeing this, this huge drive in the marketplace that, again, to a large extent, is technology enabled. I mean, if we had to go out and do the type of buying that was being done in the Jimmy Carter administration, I don't think we would have seen this kind of surge in business. The technology supports being able to shop for that, that next home from wherever you are around the globe. I want to say this too, you know, we've talked a little bit about it. There's a flight out of the cities into our rural markets. And so yeah. people are leaving the cities and they're finding that, you know, quality of life is high. And as long as I've got a fast internet connection, I can live anywhere now. I think we're going to see that that's one of the, the residuals of COVID, by the way, is that people are not going to be rushing back to go to the city and to go to the office if they don't have to. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's right. The value of being in the city is not what it used to be. And most people are anticipating, even if there's some, of course, return to work, which we certainly expect that there will be much more flexible work from home policies. So if you only have to travel into the office one or two days a week instead of five days a week, the prospect of a little longer commute doesn't seem so bad versus the benefits of being perhaps in a more scenic environment or, of course, somewhere where the property values are lower. You can get more for your money. Yeah. Totally agree. I, I want to go back and ask you a couple of things about the story you told, which is really fascinating. The first is, I think you talked about two main strategies that you used, one of which was basically providing people more training before they went out to deal with situations. And the other was to provide them support so that when they were in the middle of a situation, they had someone they could turn to and, and maybe even, I don't know, I'm speculating, you're a culture that said that that is what you should do. It's okay. You don't have to figure it all out by yourself. I'm curious if those were equally contributory or what you thought was of everything you tried. I know I experienced sometimes you have a problem and you try five things in parallel to solve it. Sometimes you discover that most of the benefit you got was really just one of those things, but you couldn't have known which. So you did a bunch of things. I'm curious if there was anything that was disproportionate in terms of the main thing or was it evenly spread across the different things that you tried? I will tell you that uh, even today, many, many years later, 30 some odd years later, I still have a rule for my developers in particular that if you get stuck and you don't know what to do and more than 15 minutes click off the clock, you need to raise your hand and get some help. Don't wait around, wait for inspiration or your muse to show up, right? You know, just go ahead and get into a conversation with another human that actually has some knowledge that they can get into the problem with you on, right? Because uh, a lot of times just talking it out helps. And that's what I learned from that experience was having those two resources, one that really knew how to train people on the tasks and the other one that said, and I know how to read the tech data that defines this weapon system mm -hmm. and I can explain it to you. Both of those are tied into that word hope that was thrown at me by my, my senior NCOs, right? And is said, well, you got to give them some hope. And I needed them to have more confidence in being able to do the task, to approach the task. Don't be fearful of it. It's all written down for you. Notes, cautions, and warnings throughout, hopefully in the right order. And if you'll just follow the process and trust the process, you're going to get through this. But if the process fails you, I want you to call that other guy and get him on the radio real quick and help him get you up to speed on what the tech data is really saying, right? What's the proper interpretation of this particular line when it says do this? And that extra measure of confidence, I think, from both sides really helped the guys more than anything else. Short of having somebody out there, you know, literally helping them all the way through, 
so here's the other part of this. So you, you want them to grow up, right? You want them to get to the point where they don't need all that help, right? So how do you lessen the amount of lifeline over time? And truthfully, I didn't have very long to sort that part out, to be honest with you. But I feel like that set of mechanisms, the confidence in, you know, having drilled through the task, you know, and in the military, we do things that a lot of times I have not seen counterpart for in the civilian sector. And a lot of that is the pre-briefing, you know, here's how we're going to go after our plan. This is the task that we're going to be performing. And let's just say, you know, we're going to go out and we're going to do a... um, a remove and replace on the bomb. You know, we're going to take the capsule off the top of the missile. So let's spend a couple of minutes at least thinking through all of the steps. Let's go get the tech data, bring it in here into the, the classroom. Let's look at all the steps that we're going to have to take, right? Let's start to visualize how we're going to approach this task when we get out there. And now I'm fully prepared. And then the other thing that, that we do in the military that hardly anybody does outside the military is, okay, now that we've done it, what went wrong? What could we have done differently? What should we have planned for better? What should we have attacked differently in our task preparation that would have helped us get through this better in the past? So that retrospective, or you know, as some people call them, a postmortem. I kind of like the word retrospective better than uh, you know, looking back at the dead. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely, because even if things went well, you should still look back and then say, "So what went right?" Yeah. You know, and and over on the marketing side of life, you know, I find myself driving more and more in that direction of the retrospective. Okay, we we said these campaigns were going to do these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Did they? Why do you think they didn't? Or, you know, why did you think it worked so much better than we thought, right? Hardly ever happens, but it does. And so you, you kind of go, I think the more that we can get into that kind of intensive post-action analysis, the better we're going to perform in the future. Yeah, uh, and and so my teams on the marketing side are doing that. My teams on the IT side are also doing that, but we're we're doing more focus around the code reviews and peer reviews, peer analysis, just making sure that everybody's got clarity. And I th- I think ultimately when it comes down to getting through the people problems on any change project, I think as part of the leadership team, you you really have to fight to get clarity. What exactly are we doing? Why exactly are we doing it? I'm not going to tell you how to do it. I'm just going to tell you the importance of getting it done this way in order for us to get to these kinds of objectives and key results. In order for us to get to these kind of measures that are improved, here's what we've got to have happen, right? Here's your lane. Here's the other guy's lane. And oh, by the way, on a project like this, a major transformational project, there are no lanes, right? So Howard, if you see something that I'm doing wrong, don't be hesitant about calling me out on it. Do it in a nice, respectful, polished, and professional way. Don't just call me an idiot and walk away in a huff. Explain to me what you're seeing and why why it's causing you that kind of emotional reaction. And then let's get into what can we do to make it better. And so I played um, I played football in, in high school and college. I'm a fairly good-sized fella. Not as big as the real big guys today, but, you know, I played offensive line. And uh, one of the things that, you know, was always kind of a rule for us is, you know, I've got my guy over here. I'm a tackle. I'm wrestling with a 300-pounder and trying to keep him away from my play. My guard is next to me. He's got a 300-pounder that he's all tied up with. My tight end's over on the other side. He's got a big guy that he's wrestling to the mat. And there's a linebacker that's about to shoot the gap. We're all fully occupied, busier than all get out. But if we let that linebacker go free without just trying to stick a leg out or throw an elbow or something, 
that guy could blow up our play too. And then all of that work that I'm doing individually that my guards doing or my tight ends doing all goes for nothing because the linebacker came through free and unobstructed and blew up our play in the backfield. Right. So I can never have a team where you can say, no, I, I, I was doing my job, boss. I, I was all full up. Right. No, nope, Cause your job is not to just, deal with your man your job is to protect the play and allow us to get the results as a team that we're looking for it's not about you individually on a team sport and everything that i do in it and marketing is a team sport there is absolutely no individual performance here yeah all the business i think you're right it's a team sport whether it's customer service or finance or any aspect i agree totally and you know one of the things i took from your story is that that humility. Well, your two stories, the, the football story and the military story in the military story, I, you know, I heard over and over your behavior as well of asking for help. Someone comes to you and says, Hey, you're not meeting your targets. So what do you think I should do? You know, that's maybe not something that I would imagine everybody would do. And then of course, reaching out to get the help, to get the support you need, and then making that be something that you're instilling in the team itself. This idea that you're not alone, reach out for help, get help from others. As simple and basic as an idea as that is, you're sort of making me think about it and realize, I bet you there's a lot of teams where there's a competitive culture that sometimes gets instilled in teams as well, that while competition can also be good and positive and motivate people, it may also sometimes diffuse people's tendency to always reach their hand up and always admit, because it's about admitting that you can't do it all yourself, which creates a certain vulnerability. And so I, I particularly interested in that story as a military story, because a number of things that you talked about go against, and I've never been in the military. So my impression of the military is probably from a lot of inaccurate places like movies and stuff, but it goes against my, let's say it kind of stereotyped idea of a military where everybody is kind of, what was that army of one? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I hated that army of one horse crap. Uh, so did most of the army guys, by the way, because they're like, no, that's not how it works. Right. You know, right from basic and beyond, right. You're broken down to be part of a team, right. It's, it's always a squad, a team, platoon. We call them different things, flights, squadrons, brigades, wings in the military and the air force. Navy has their own words, uh, but it's, it all means the same thing. You know, and ultimately we're all slaves to what they call a Dunbar number, which is, you know, about 150 people. And all of a sudden you need to branch off and form a new group because about 150 is all you're going to be able to maintain as a community. When you think about what you see in the movies versus what we experience in real life, I will tell you, even, you know, 20 some years later, I was on active duty for seven and a half years. I had great jobs. I had some really great leaders. Even today, I find myself, if I'm really up against it with a particular problem, I ask myself, what would Colonel Politi do? What would Colonel Wade do? These were two guys that, that really, really taught me how to be a leader. They were really, really focused on getting the mission done, but they were also really about, you know, how do I take care of my people? And that's one of the, the other oddities, right? So a lot of times people say, well, well, you know, in the military, the people are expendable. I'm like, no, they're not. They're absolutely not. Why would you ever think that? You can't get the job done without the people. And there's no sense in having a job if you don't have the people. So I've always thought of the mission people as a plank, right? They're all on one board, right? And you can focus on one side or the other, and you can be out of balance on one side or the other, as, as you know, Dr. Covey tells us. And you can be controlled out of balance for a little while on either side of that equation. 
But your job as a leader is to keep the plank in balance. And so the best organizations that I've ever seen are the most balanced when it comes to people and mission. The ones that get out, out of whack are, you know, hey, our people are the most important thing ever, right? Well, the mission falls off. I have to have both people and a mission. Otherwise, there's no point in me calling myself a leader. Leader of what? What mission am I trying to do? What people do I lead? I don't know. But it's only when I have both components and that they're seamlessly engaged, now I can start to establish leverage and control. And I can start to close down the vacuum in the middle that is usually communication gaps, values, misalignments, mission and misunderstanding, right? It's all the opposites of clarity that you can think about. If I have people coming in at the low end, they're brand new, just out of basic training in the military. They don't know anything about what we do here and how this missile system works and how we take care of it. And then at the opposite end of that spectrum, I have the guys that have been here forever. They know everything about this thing. They know more. They've forgotten more than I'm ever going to learn. And so they're self-directed team players, right? So down here, I got a, let's call them a robot-like person that needs me to give them a checklist for everything that they're going to be asked to do and descriptions of how to do it. These guys over here, they don't need that. They wrote the book. They don't know how to forget all that stuff. So they just self-directed team players. My job as a leader, by the way, is to get everybody on my team as high up as I possibly can. So all I'm doing is cheerleading and and rah-rah stuff Mm because that's the most fun for me. Down here, I don't like to dictate and I don't want to micromanage anybody. And so if it looks like you're going to need to be micromanaged for a long time, I need you to go somewhere else. You're probably not going to work out in my group. I'm much better with engineers who like to think and like to be in control that are okay with some guidance and some help from time to time. So when you think about those kinds of alignment challenges, mission, people, like I was saying before, the the notion that an organization that's in balance mostly is the optimized organization because you can start to increase performance over time. When you have an organization that is out of balance for a sustained period of time on either side, oh, you know, my people are the most important, you know, Sally, I really need you to do this for customer X. Well, I can't. My dog needs a bath. Uh, and you said I was the most important, Walt. So I'm going to have to take my time and give my dog a bath on Saturday. I'm not going to be able to do customer X's thing. Pretty soon I've lost customer X and customer Y and customer Z. And next thing you know, you know, I got no business. So I'm like, crap. Okay. It would have been so much easier to just say, you know what, Sally, from time to time, you're going to have to schedule that dog bath differently in order to support customer X. And I'm sorry about that, but that's real life. And that's what we're doing. If you're going to be on the team, it's okay to give the dog a bath when we've got the slack, but when we've got no slack with customer X, you have to give somebody else an opportunity to give that dog a bath, or we're going to find you a new place to excel, but it's not going to be here on this team and certainly not supporting customer X. And so you start to manage to keep things out of balance a little bit, back, 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 you know, big push, got a big push, got to get this thing in. We've made commitments to the marketplace, stakeholder commitment from our CEO out to the market. Can't miss this deadline. Everybody, you know, mock 12 with hair on fire. We got to get this thing done. And then you have the big party and the celebration and the award ceremony to let everybody restore balance. Can't drive people mercilessly. Otherwise, the people fall off. Yeah. And I've seen organizations fail, and you probably have too, in both of those, right? Sometimes the people get too arrogant. And, and, you know, and it's funny too, because even the best people will take advantage of a culture like that. And they will they will let themselves become more important if you tell them that they are. On the other hand, you say the mission's the most important thing and the people are expendable, then the people will roll off because they know they're expendable. Holding the line on that balance is really, I think, the hardest part and frankly the most rewarding part of doing what I do. 
it really is change leadership is right there in that delta. Yeah. Well, I think it's a very interesting dynamic. And I think in my own business, you know, it's just as you described, it's a constant thing that needs to be kept in balance. One of the things that I find helps is when you can get the people in the organization to really take a personal interest in the mission, when they're working on something that they're really passionate about, at least then you get a little bit of a crossover between those two things. Serving customer acts, as you say, becomes something that that person is also really personally rewarded by, personally committed to, versus just, you know, it's, it's my job, so I have to balance course you still need to take care of yourself don't get me wrong you can't be totally focused on that but i think that's one thing that as leaders we always want to be trying to find what's the what's the real meaning why is this thing that we're doing for customer x even if it's just balancing their credit card return or whatever it's got a bigger purpose it serves a higher need that we can feel is is really a contribution we're making to the world and therefore is also in service of ourselves as well no I, i can't agree with you more you know we used to have this this concept that we talked about a lot called the lifetime value of a customer we talked about the power of having that great relationship, so great that, you know, even when we, we have the aw shucks moments, we've got such a great deposit in that relationship from our years of great service that, you know, it's okay. We can survive that aw shucks moment. You know, I, I kind of laugh sometimes at the, the Simon Sinek stuff, you know, you know, the power of why like a Captain Obvious moment. But in another way, it is profound because so few organizations as I was coming up, I don't remember very many organizations at all that welcomed me in and said, okay, and this is why we're doing what we're doing for this customer. Or this is why we're doing what we're doing for these customers. And Walt, here's your critical role in that. It was more about, here's your job description. Here's where you sit. Here's your cube. Here's what I need you to work on, you know? And it's almost like the office space movie, you know? And hey, don't forget the cover sheets. Got it. I'm on those cover sheets, buddy. That power of why thing turns out to be pretty profound, even though it seems like it's pretty obvious, it's not. And clarity is not obvious. And fighting for that is not obvious. So as a turnaround guy throughout my career, I've gone into multiple big organizations and really kind of grabbed the steer by the horns and said, well, why are you doing that? You said you were doing these things, but these things don't add up to that at all. Let's cut all of that out and let's focus on these three things, just three things that we can make a needle move on. And let's see what happens, right? If we just focus our effort right here. And normally that momentum from those three things moves the whole project where it needed to be. And I'm always trying to go, okay, I got to shrink the menu here down to three things that we can really focus as a team on, get everybody all in on a team basis, no individual prima donnas here. That's the way you roll, roll on out. And I can get this done with people that are more team oriented. Come on, let's go. And and that's worked for me. I, I mean, there's other people that bring in the army of prima donnas and focus them individually. And they're really masters and maestros at that. I'm not one of those guys, Howard. I'm, I'm more of a, hey, there's 11 people on the field. Let's go. Let's let's put it in the end zone. What the heck? Yeah. Well, I want to ask you one question. This has just been a tremendous, tremendous tour of your experience, but also tons of wisdom along the way. You know, one of the things you've helped me rethink a little bit, my own assumptions, as I mentioned about the military. In fact, I often use an example when I talk about change within organizations. And I talk very often about how large organizations tend to be resistant to change and how, you know, there's reasons why organizations want to set policies and processes and procedures because they don't want everybody reinventing everything all the time. There's things put together for a reason by the people that, as you said, wrote the book, right? If every kid who comes in has a different idea about how McDonald's should make the French fries, this is not necessarily the right way to run a business. But the flip side danger of that, of course, is that companies become calcified. And then when the world changes, they're not ready to change. And the funny thing is, look, you know, you have to always consider the risk of change. And the example I tend to use is if you're running a nuclear reactor 
And I realized you weren't running a reactor, you were doing nuclear warheads. But you know, when you're doing something that is seemingly so dangerous, you have an excuse to be resistant to change. But what I'm hearing from you is you came into an environment which was all about nuclear weapons, very, very theoretically dangerous environment. Mm -hmm. And yet the change was essential and not only change, but rapid change. And it wasn't about saying, well, we just need to follow the rules. We need to go by the book because after all, this is dangerous equipment. In fact, you were able to, I assume, make things better and safer because you had fewer of those mistakes being made when those maintenance requests were coming in and you had to keep things running correctly. That was interesting to me, and I'm, I'm curious any thoughts you have about the way people might view bureaucracy versus change and whether those two things are really conflicting or, or how highly regimented companies, and now you're in financial services where, of course, you have huge regulatory yeah. expectations where, again, it makes it hard to just say, oh, throw caution in the wind, let's just change everything. And yet I'm hearing you tell stories about very, very rigorous environments where change was something that you drove in a pretty rapid fashion. Any thoughts about that kind of dialectic? Yeah, I, I will say this, my humble but totally accurate opinion, bureaucracy is the biggest enemy of innovation in organizations. And bureaucracy in, in the most evil sense is just an opportunity for people that are mean-spirited to say no to good ideas and look like they're doing the right thing by the book. They have cover from the bureaucracy to say no versus the kind of leadership that it takes to actually look at Again, I didn't change the weapon system in Minot, right? It was the same nuclear missiles that have been in the ground there since probably I was born. So I didn't change the weapon system. I didn't do anything innovative on the weapon system. All of my innovation was how do you lead people to take better care of the weapon system? Most of the time in the technology world, we're not doing rocket science. I hate to say it that way, but we really aren't. By the way, I'm a physicist. Uh, I am a card-carrying rocket scientist that's worked on real rockets that could blow up multiple cities. And so this is a no-kidding kind of experience that I've had. Today, I make the world safe for mortgages. And I'm not making the world safe for democracy. I'm making sure that, you know, if you're my customer, you have a good ride with the technology. But I'm also supporting the relationship building between my loan officers and you and your family to make sure you have confidence that when we take the authority step and say, Howard, here's when we're going to close, here's where you're going to need to sign, that you're not fighting me or fighting that loan officer because you had a bad experience along the way with either our delivery or our technology services or what. We want you to feel comfortable in the key moment, especially making the biggest purchase of your life. For most people, that mortgage is, is what that is. We're highly regulated. That's a key point. But that doesn't mean I can't innovate. It doesn't mean I can't do a better job taking care of my customers than any of the other guys that have the same regulatory burden that I have. I just need to think differently about what am I really doing here? It's the same product at the same price. How do I win? How, how is it possible that we're growing like we are at Homestar? And it's because of this mindset. We're not willing to just sit back and do it the way everybody else does it and be happy. We want to do it better than anybody else is doing it. What does that look like? And whose eyes are beholding this beauty that we're creating? Because it really is determined by who the, who the beholder is. So when I look at all of that stuff and I, I look at some of the mentalities that people have about the military, boy, when, when the bullets are flying and you've got to you know, make a decision, I would rather be in a military uniform anytime than a civilian organization where I got to go through three layers of committees and an evaluation squad to figure out if my ideas got any more. I'm like, no, guys, get up and move to the right, because if we stay here, we're going to die. Fantastic. Inspiring description. And I love the analogy. And I'm going to be thinking a lot about this over the new year. I know this military business uh, mindset. 
Thank you so much, Walt. My guest today has been Walt Carter, the CIO and CDO, Chief Digital Officer of Homestar Financial. Thank you all for listening. I hope you found this as gripping as I did. Really, really profound, interesting stuff. A different way of thinking about the work that we all do on a daily basis. So I love that. Thanks, Walt, for your stories and your wisdom and for being here. And to all of you, including, of course, you all have a happy new year.